0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Marlene Trestman about her new book, Fair Labor Lawyer, The Remarkable Life of New Deal Attorney and Supreme Court Advocate Bessie Margolin. Marlene, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Marlene, I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, I'm a lawyer by training and practiced for more than three decades at the Maryland Attorney General's office, where for the last decade I was special assistant to the Maryland Attorney General. Um, My educational background is I'm a proud alumna of Goucher College here in Baltimore, GW Law School in Washington, and got my MBA from the Sellinger School of Business at Loyola here in Baltimore.
0: What, uh, led you from that background to writing this book? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And and I'll start off by saying I never really wanted to write this book. Um, Bessie Margolin was someone I had the privilege of getting to know personally when I was in college and law school and into my legal career, and after she died in 1996, it struck me as terrible that no one had ever written her biography, that, sh- that she was really a legend whose story needed to be told. So I started off, uh, I was practicing law full-time, doing trial work to small kids, family, and simply nominated her to various organizations that I thought would want to showcase her. And each one responded very favorably that she was someone who they think should be uh, written about and emphasized, whether it was in Jewish Women's Archive or the Supreme Court Historical Society or other organizations, but that I should write it. So <laughs> that wasn't going to happen until about 2005, where it really was sticking with me, that no one it didn't look like anyone else was going to do it. So I started uh, taking personal time to do interviews, collect her papers, go to archives, and simply thought that I would write something. So um, the personal relationship is we were both, uh, are both born, well, I was born, she was raised in New Orleans, and um, we got to know each other. Bessie Margolin grew up in the New Orleans Jewish Orphanage, and it closed in 1946. But I became an orphan two decades later, but was cared for by the agency that succeeded the orphanage. And because of the similarity in our backgrounds and because we both, because of our, um, the fact that we were wards of this Jewish social service agency, went to the same high school in New Orleans, we were introduced by my guidance counselor when I was headed off for college and I got to know Bessie Margolin when I first arrived in in Baltimore. She invited me for several weekends, and we continued a sort of friendship, mentorship through through the next decade or more.
0: Did she uh, was she inspirational in terms of uh, steering you towards law school, or did you uh, were you heading that direction, and that's what uh, led you to uh, the connection with Bessie?
1: Well, it's sort of a little of both. I think I had already expressed some interest in law or was thinking about it by the time I was headed to college, but I can't underestimate the influence that this amazing woman had on my life. She was the first woman, first female lawyer I ever met, and um, it it strikes me um, as funny that I guess it's only in more recent years that I've come to see what an an impact she had on my life. So I guess it was a little of both.
0: Okay, uh, what was she like in person when you met her?
1: <laughs> she was the most distinguished and worldly person I had ever met. I, I remember quite well the first meeting uh, when I took, uh, when I went to DC, she took me to the Kennedy Center and that was preceded by a dinner Um, at some French restaurant that I can't quite remember, but literally she was asked when we entered if she would like to be seated at her usual table. Uh, She wore a fine wool suit that I understand from others who knew her much longer. That was her trademark, her elegance, her meticulous fashion of dressing, Um, always careful attention to her hair, to her makeup, um, nothing flashy, but everything was carefully selected and, and well-tailored. But she was quite kind to me. Um, there were others who met her, I'm sure, and I I learned about this in a professional setting, that saw her as quite um, elitist and imperious. And, and I think she probably came off that way in her later years um, because she really had reached a stature of quite significance of, of some quite significance and um, uh, I think there were some who were probably intimidated by her. I too was intimidated but she was so gracious to me um, and the only thing I regret was that I didn't have a tape recorder with me every time we met because so much went right over my very young and uh, um, uh, unschooled head whether she was talking about the Supreme Court or the New Deal or Politics at the time in Washington.
0: One of the things that really comes across in your book is the, the journey that she underwent to reach that point. I mean, it was not an easy journey, especially considering where she started. I was wondering if you could uh, explain to our audience a, a bit about you know her her background, her her family, and and, and what led her to New Orleans and uh, the orphanage.
1: Sure, sure. Um, Bessie was born in Brooklyn, New York, in 1909, and she was the first American-born child to Russian Jewish immigrants. Um, Because most immigrants were living in such tough and crowded conditions at the time, the Margolin family, like many other Jewish families who were in heavily populated northeastern cities, were pushed further inward and southward in the United States, and the Margolins made their way to Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Bessie's mother died a year or so after they were in Memphis after giving birth to Bessie's younger brother, Jake, and Harry, her father, found himself alone and quite, um, you know, he he was a, a peddler and a, and an, a sometimes carpenter, Alone and um, in Memphis with three young children, years before uh, 1856, an orphanage had been established in New Orleans. And by 1913, when the Margolin children, the Margolin children were motherless, the orphanage was taking Jewish children from seven southern states, including Tennessee. A rabbi in Memphis um, noticed and. Caught wind of the Margolins' plight and recommended the children for admission into the orphanage in New Orleans. And for Harry, who was an itinerant peddler and uh, occasional carpenter, this was probably, um, you know, a a, a, a very um, promising way to have his children cared for when he could not although no doubt there was the sacrifice of of being distant from his children. So the three children were admitted to the orphanage and lived there throughout their childhood, leaving only after each of them went off to college or, in the older sister's case, a nursing school. So there, Bessie received the equivalent of an education that was like an elite religion, just boarding school, the New Orleans Orphanage, unlike many orphanages in the the northeastern United States, such as in New York and Cleveland and Philadelphia that are much more well known, these children never exceeded about one hundred and fifty in the entire orphanage, and they were doted upon and generously favored by uh, the largely German Jewish immigrants who were the founders and trustees of the orphanage, um, both out of a biblical mandate to care for widows and orphans but also to evade any anti-Semitism that could come from having um, more recent immigrants from Eastern European uh, descent fall upon the public dole. So with this two-pronged effort or 2 prong supported effort and reason to, to support these children, there was every effort made to have them become self-sufficient and, and quite prosperous American Jewish citizens. In Bessie's case, it's it's quite extraordinary. Um, she, like other girls of her time in the orphanage, were given into the care of big sisters, and these were matrons from the community, often quite prosperous and women of prestige who would take time to mother the girls in almost every way that you can imagine, showing them the finer things in life. And in Bessie's case, her matron was a woman by the name of Hannah Stern, whose, um, whose husband was a cotton merchant and quite prosperous in New Orleans. But to give you a sense of their social status, they not only lived in a grand mansion on St. Charles Avenue in New Orleans, but her son, Edgar, married Edith Rosenwald, who was the daughter of the Sears Roebuck mag- magnate. And all of this during the time that Bessie would have visited um, her matron's home and, and been under her tutelage. The other thing that was extraordinary for Bessie, as well as her siblings and, and most of the other children in the orphanage, is that they had, they had the ability and the right to attend the Isidore Newman School, which had been founded for the orphans in a separate building two blocks away that, when it was founded, was also decreed to be open for children of prosperous New Orleans families, from any New Orleans family, regardless of religion, um, who could pay tuition. So the children from the orphanage learned side by side in their daily uh, rigorous academics as well as manual training with children from the most prosperous families in New Orleans, Jews and Gentiles alike. Um, It was not racially integrated. This was 1909 in New Orleans and so that did not happen until (coughs) much later. But at least in terms of um, exposing the children to middle class and upper middle class children whose families had at their helm uh, doctors and lawyers and bankers and and all of those sorts of people. These children were 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 tutored in upward mobility. So the combination of these two things really took root in Bessie, where her new in her Newman education she excelled in every subject. She won. She was valedictorian in her graduating class at Newman and won a, a scholarship to Newcomb which was then, and until fairly recently, the Women's Coordinate College at Tulane. So um, she just, at at every juncture, opportunities were afforded to her, and she was very comfortable in a co-ed setting, competing and succeeding and and winning people's respect. Um, And mind you, she graduated from high school in in 1925, Um, so, you know, this was, this was at a time when women were certainly not always encouraged for further education and certainly not in the, in the working world. So once she was at Newcomb, she again excelled. She was in the top ten of her class after her first two years and quite audaciously decides she wants to go to law school, something no other girl from the orphanage had ever done. A few of the boys had in the orphanage's history, but there had been uh, another uh, girl at Newman a few years ahead of her who had gone to uh, law school, which shows the impact of being in that school. So she went to Tulane Law School, where she, where she was the only woman in her class, graduated in 1930 at age 21, second in her law school class of some 30 students, and um, was an editor of the Law Review.
0: So. Actually, I'm sorry, uh, but I, I was—I uh, I didn't want to get too far ahead because I, I want to kind of come back and revisit a couple of sure, points. Sure. I mean, it, it's, it's quite an arc that she, that she had. And one of the points that you make in the book is that for her father to give her up to the orphanage, while was, it was a product of, of, of the circumstances of Rebecca's death and everything, that it really was a, an awareness that the orphanage was not some... Dickensian whole, but a place where she would enjoy those opportunities. She would have the opportunity to excel in a way that she likely would not have uh, had she uh, stayed uh, in his household.
1: Absolutely. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. And the other thing, um, and, and this was well known throughout the South that the New Orleans Jewish Orphanage held these benefits for these children. In fact, orphanage um, really became a misnomer, and it wasn't until Bessie left the home that it it, it changed its name to the, the Jewish Children's Home as opposed to orphans because there were quite a few children who had both parents alive and a significant number with a single parent alive, and the minority were true orphans with no living parent but it was quite acceptable uh, largely because parents felt comfortable having their children raised in a home that was of their religion Jewish and um where they knew they could be afforded benefits that they might not otherwise get this was this predates social security and the ability of a single parent to male or female to raise children alone was, was really almost non-existent. So it was a fairly common thing for children to be put in what were known as asylums um, or homes, and, and certainly the children that went into the Jewish orphans' home in New Orleans, um, like I said, it was much more like a, a religious boarding school, an elite boarding school, than anything, as you say, either you know Little Orphan Annie or something from Charles Dickens. The children received the finest medical care the, the, the meals were carefully attended to. Uniforms were discontinued at the turn of the 20th century. Every, every and, and as you yeah. and as
0: you point out, they they were also socially integrated into the, the the middle class, the upper middle class. So it was not just that opportunities were provided for them, but they were. Uh, they they had that that the ability to develop those connections earlier.
1: absolutely. On. and now the downside and, and it's interesting as well is the distancing that occurred, however, between these children and their natural parents was one of the byproducts, um, perhaps intended in many ways. There's some indication that the um, the trustees of of the home looked down upon the more recent European immigrant. Uh, parents of these children, and so there was limited visitation, and so it was rather um, strict in terms of ensuring that these children were raised in the the manner that the home sought for them, even if it came at the emotional and uh, physical separation from from their families. Children Did were certainly free to be released. To parents who could care for them, or when the children demonstrated self-sufficiency to earn a living, um, children, it, it was, there, was, there was strict um, scrutiny given before children were released, remarriage of a, of a, of a mother or a father, uh, occasional adoption, but that was in no way the, the intention, and that was a very rare occurrence. Um the children, especially during bessie's time, often lived in the home upwards of ten years. bessie's um stay of, of twelve years was almost the average
0: now uh you mentioned the the you know that this did come at a cost how did uh, Bessie herself reflect upon her time at at the uh at the school did uh, at the uh, home did she did she ever uh, comment upon this, or was, did she view it in, in, in more positive terms?
1: She rarely commented upon it. It wasn't something that she would volunteer, and I don't think I ever recall her discussing that with me. But her nephews, the, the children of her two siblings, said that whenever she did talk about the home, it was always very positive, positive. And she was even um, quoted as having told the newspaper that she she was um, uh, indebted to the home for creating a family feeling between her and her siblings and maintaining a family feeling. And she was grateful, this she said on several occasions, for the opportunities that the home had provided her.
0: So that while her father uh, was no longer a regular part of her life, she did have... Her sisters and her brother, who were.
1: Exactly, her one sister and her one brother, her older sister Dora and her younger brother Jack, and both of whom also typify the um, achievements of, of the, the children in the orphanage. Her sister went on to nursing school after completing Newman as, as high school and returned to the home as a registered nurse to tend to the children showing the, the emotional attachment. Um, it, it, the other thing that shows the emotional attachment of the Margolin and children to the home is when Dora married, her reception was held in the orphanage, in the home, and the reception was hosted by the superintendent of the orphanage. She met her husband, who was a doctor. Um, while she was a nurse in the home, he would come and help Uh, sort of monitor study hall in in the orphanage as did other young men and young women in the New Orleans area and Bessie's younger brother Jack also did quite well he went to Tulane for business school as an undergraduate and then got his MBA from Dartmouth in the early 1930s and ended up in retail in Atlanta so there are quite a few stories Bessie is is Certainly an outlier in terms of the height of her achievement, but there are some wonderful stories yet to be told about the children from this orphanage.
0: Wow. Now, um, you mentioned that uh, Bessie's older sister uh, got married. Was uh, Bessie herself uh, involved in any uh, important relationships during this time?
1: And, like through law school and around that? And that's yeah, basically really when, in, in
0: college. Exactly.
1: Yes, and in fact, what's interesting is the story goes that, that Dora's husband, Harry, Harry, was first introduced to Bessie in a dating and social sense, but he quickly got the sense that she was um, not the traditional sort of girl he was looking for and ended up uh, falling in love with and, and marrying Bessie's sister, Dora. Now, it turns out that Bessie did have a very serious romantic relationship that, that included an engagement to a classmate in law school, uh, a gentleman by the name of Bob Butler. But by 1933, when Bessie had moved on to work at the Tennessee Valley Authority, and I know we'll get to that in a minute, um, she broke off the relationship. And others said it was no surprise to them that Bessie was simply not cut out for being a a stay-at-home wife and mother. But I think it was only Bob who hadn't quite figured this out. He gave her a book of quotations. Lovingly inscribed with a with a quote um, to my sweetheart Bess, love Bob. But in the very same book of quotations, on every blank space in the margins and at the back of the book, Bessie inscribed in by hand in pencil extensive passages from Virginia Woolf's then just months old published essay, A Room of One's Own, which, as you know, extols the virtue of women having their own space, literally and figuratively. So I think it was, Bessie knew from the start that, you know, she had other plans in mind.
0: And that is one of the things that really stood out as I was reading the book was the degree to which Bessie seemed to have a very clear awareness of herself that I would Characterized as very modern by our standards today.
1: Absolutely, and I think what's also wonderful is with few exception and um, With few exceptions, Bessie was never really told no And there's only a few times where and she related one of them to me where being either a woman or a Jewish woman or any other combination of of, uh, characteristics that she held prevented her from doing something. Newman seemed only to ground her in her abilities to compete with anyone, male, female, or otherwise, um, as did her, her experience both at Newcomb and at Tulane Law School, where she quickly endeared herself to both her classmates as well as the faculty, who sent her off with glowing recommendations to Yale, where they hoped, even though it was the height of the Depression, um, to find her either a job or a t- or a graduate fellowship, which in fact they did. There was a bit of resistance there where gender became an issue. In fact, also her religion, but she seemed to endear herself in, in that circumstance as well.
0: That That, that is I think the f- first point uh, in the book that stands out to me where she does where you do address the, those obstacles that she encountered and And yet she is very uh, uh, assertive in terms of presenting herself and she is not, uh, there's no false modesty. There's no, uh, you know, demureness. She basically is, she has a very self-aware sense of who she is and what she can accomplish. And not only does she have that sense, but when she is given the opportunity, she delivers on that.
1: That's correct. And and if what you're referring to is, you know, she at this point uh, she's being recommended from Tulane Law School by the dean and the professors at Tulane Law School to either get a job or to get a graduate fellowship at Yale, and the response was a double whammy in different ways: gender and religion. On the gender side, the dean of Yale's law school came back and said that she certainly seemed worthy of a job, like being a research assistant, but he refused to consider her for a graduate fellowship because he feared that she would get in mind that she might go on and teach law, and that was simply a job opportunity that was not available to women. Um, If anyone thinks that becoming a woman lawyer was hard, becoming a woman law professor was even tougher and um, didn't change much until many years later. So that was the first thing, but she overcame that because by the time she got to Yale, she impressed both the, 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 the professor that she was working for as a research assistant but also, very importantly, a wildly popular young faculty member by the name of William O. Douglas, the future Supreme Court justice. And so within by the end of two years, with, just, with, with Professor Douglas's help and uh, Professor Lorenzen's help, who she was working for, she overcame Dean Clark's earlier opposition and became the first woman awarded Yale Sterling Fellowship for Graduate Studies. So, yes, um, you know, but, but the thing that's also, I think, so important to to look at from Bessie's story that's just as important today is the, the significance of having champions in her life, not just people who wrote letters of recommendation or mentors, but these people in her life, the deans, and they were almost always men because those were the people she worked for or went to school with, Um, they took her on and understood her significance and fought for her, which I think is, is still what's so essential for anyone getting on in the world today. On the religion side, the first time that really, that I could find documented that it posed in some way a problem was, again, in applying for this either teaching position or fellowship, The registrar from Yale wrote a one sentence inquiry back to the dean of Tulane's Law School and asked, Is Miss Margolin Jewish? And the dean of Tulane's Law School, Rufus Harris, himself a Yale law graduate, knew what this meant that a wrong answer could doom her chances. So Rufus Harris, who was quite devoted to Bessie and seeing that she do well in the future, proceeded to write what I can only describe as a flourish of benign anti-Semitism, where in proclaiming her merits, he goes on to really show his um, prejudice against Jews generally. But but in the context of New Orleans, I think he's not alone. And what he went on to say was simply that she showed none, yes, she was Jewish, but that she showed none of the... um, the the negative tendencies that um often are attributed to those quote New York type of Jews. And the funny thing is, of course, Bessie was as much a New York Jew as <laughs> anyone else. She was born there. Um but he went on to say and explain which really was irrelevant in her case, but I think he and I, I don't think he knew it was untrue he went on to say, here in New Orleans, we have many Jews of the Sephardic and Spanish descent, and they don't bear any of the characteristics that are attributed to those other kinds of Jews. So, um, He's and, almost
0: Americanizing her as much as, as he can in his letter.
1: Yes, and I believe it was all completely sincere. I think that as, as Jews, as they were assimilated in New Orleans to a person, they could go about about their life pretty unrestricted, but Jews generally were certainly not welcomed in a lot of places. So this was very typical of attitudes as they existed, and even, I think, as I knew them growing up in New Orleans. And so Rufus Harris ended his his letter to the registrar with the plea, I hope no prejudice will be shown in her case. And the
0: is, is the response un, was irony.
1: affirmative. That yes, we ask we ask this of all. We asked this of all applicants. Was I'm not so sure that's the case. And the registrar went on to say, "There will be no prejudice shown in her case." <laughs> 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 so uh, yes, she uh, she overcame some obstacles.
0: And and the, those obstacles that uh, you know you, you she encounters in in varying ways. Uh, I'm thinking primarily of of, of the obstacles uh, due to her sex. I was wondering if you could provide a bit of context before we start talking about her career of what it meant to be a a, a woman who was a lawyer in
1: in America. 1930, 1933. Only 2% of America's lawyers were were women in 1930. Um, More were joining law schools because of suffrage, and uh, there was certainly... Women in more and more law schools around the country, still a few, quite a few holdouts, but they were by no means accepted or welcome on the whole. For the most part, women were seen by their male classmates as occupying a space that would otherwise go to a man, and that the woman clearly must only be there for on a short-term basis. She was obviously only looking for a husband. Um, or, or for pocket change for, for, things and, and would not need the job as would a man. So there was usually lots of hostility. Bessie seemed to overcome it and never, other than a, a, a brief reference to feeling isolated and self conscious, um, and that was quickly overcome. Jessie revered her time in law school and, was again, expressed her gratitude to Tulane for accepting her. She was far more grateful for the opportunity to be there than ever maligning what sort of circumstances she faced. One of my favorite stories was told by one of her law school classmates at a reunion many years later, and he said that the men in the class had to get used to having this lone woman in the class There was a time when a professor asked someone to recite the facts of a case, and it happened to involve some sort of accident in a man's bathroom. No one wanted to recite the facts of the case because they would have to say the word toilet, and they weren't (laughs) to do so in mixed company. And so this fellow goes on to say, and he was someone who Bessie um, continued a friendship and professional relationship for years, he went on to say that one poor fellow finally blurted out washroom and they all sighed with relief. So <laughs> I, I think she was a good sport. I think she figured out that she, if she wanted to succeed in this world that she very much wanted to be in, she had to get along. She had to prove herself. She knew that she had to have, in her words, far better equipment than the men that she would have to have better pedigrees, um, that men of just average equipment would get opportunities that women would have to have far better credentials to even apply for. And she gave this advice very publicly in her sororities magazine in 1938, telling her classmates that if they wanted to succeed in a man's world of law, that they had to accept responsibility, criticism, and hard work in the same spirit as do the men. And they also had to do this. Their goal had to be to become one of the men without, however, becoming overly aggressive or masculine in their approach. So um, that's pretty much the word she lived by.
0: Yeah, Walking that fine line between basically being in a man's world, yet never surrendering or never uh, trying to deny or pretend that she's anything other than a woman.
1: That's correct. Absolutely. And her femininity was something that she used as part of her tools of the trade. Sometimes with great criticism, I guess you could call it in today's vernacular, she was often accused of playing the woman card. But my guess is if she were asked, she'd say if she had the man card, she would have played that one, too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I'd like to talk a bit now about her uh, early career and, and uh, the, how, uh, what, what, how does she transition from Yale Law School into a uh, career uh, with the federal government?
1: Well, when she first was finishing up, it, it went while she was writing her dissertation under William O. Douglas's supervision. That third year at Yale, she was very conscious uh, of, of the need to support herself and was looking for a job before the Christmas break. Um, she was recommended by Jerome Frank, a noted attorney who was um, on in residence that year as a as a professor at the law school, he recommended Bessie to assist, at least over the summer, a former suffragist, very noteworthy by the name of Doris Stevens, who was heading up a the Inter-American Commission on Women in Washington, D.C. And Bessie applied for this. Clearly, she needed the job. She had a great background background for it, um, Dora Stevens was looking to catalog the laws of Latin American countries where the laws themselves discriminated against women. And this was in pursuit of international treaties for women's rights. She had this wonderful idea that the best way to increase women's rights domestically in the U.S. was to attack it internationally. And so she needed bilingual scholars in the law who were comfortable reading the constitutions and the statutes of all of these countries. And even though Bessie's was completely fluent in French as well as English, obviously, and had done much of her legal research in law school and in the law review in French and, and in and in American law, she pretty much winged it and told Dora Stevens that she didn't think Spanish would be a problem because there was so much similarity between <laughs> Spanish and French. So she got this job. She very much impressed Dora Stevens and had spent that summer in Washington fulfilling this job. And it was just temporary. And I thought, well, clearly this is where Bessie established, this. you know, if she hadn't already, the feminist in her would, would clearly blossom immediately under the aegis of, of Doris Stevens. Well, to the contrary, in William O. Douglas's papers at the Library of Congress, I found correspondence where she's telling her professor that the job is dreadfully dull, that Miss Stevens, as wonderful as she is, runs this little agency on a shoestring budget, and Bessie says she just doesn't think she's cut out to be this kind of feminist. But on the other hand... She was quite intrigued by what the New Deal was portending, especially, and she mentions it specifically, the Tennessee Valley Authority, without giving much further explanation. So sure enough, she gets uh, Professor Douglas and Lorenzen and the faculty from back at Tulane and a host of others to support her application for the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was hiring, of course, lawyers among the thousands of other jobs that FDR was creating in this cornerstone New Deal agency to provide electricity um and enhance social welfare throughout the impoverished Tennessee Valley. Well, she and had, and yet you, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was say you point out that, that there was a key difference which is that at that time you had so many of these New Dealers uh uh people like uh, Felix Frankfurter who were lobbying individuals to join and with her, she had to much more so than a lot of the a uh, lot of her male counterparts. She had to actively seek out a job
1: absolutely. Uh, in the TVA. That's absolutely right. Although she could, with her Yale doctorate, uh, boast the same Ivy League credentials as many of the the Harvard and other Yale graduates, there was no one welcoming her at a New Deal agency, as was the case with many of the of you know, her colleagues or contemporaries or peers at these other Ivy League schools. But she won over the TVA, and um, although it did take a, a very unusual pledge that I believe we would not see today, Professor Lorenzen wrote in his recommendation what I think he knew TVA needed to hear to hire its first woman lawyer, and that is that Bessie would pursue her career there and not be deflected by considerations of marriage. So she started her career with the federal government with a pledge that she would be married to her job instead of a man. And that was essential in 1933 for a woman to, I think, be given credibility as a lawyer. Many women, of course, after they had gotten their law degrees, the few women who were doing it often left the practice of law because they found it impossible to both be married, have children, and practice law. And even Bessie lamented the fact that she she was not condemning her sisters-in-law for doing this, but that there needed to be changes in society to support women to do it. But in Bessie's case, I think she figured that since that time had not yet come, where society would support women who both wanted to have home and family and a career, the choice was clear for her. It, I don't. It, it was never seemed to be a real choice, except
0: one she made
1: back with Bob Butler in law school, that she was going to pursue a career.
0: That, that was uh, one of the, the other things that struck me when we talk about some of her uh, other relationships, such as with uh, James Lawrence Fly and, and others, about how she was involved with with married men, and you know, on the one hand, there you know, it it, it created some difficulties for her. But on the other hand, it really did automatically preclude any possibility that she would, again, face that pressure from her lover to uh, quit the law and to become uh, a married housewife.
1: That's right. That's absolutely right. And the other thing is that it also allowed her to have as you know, her most in, and have her most intimate relationships with people, she shared all of her ideological and philosophical thoughts. These were people like her who were devoted to the New Deal, to, uh, to pursuing social justice through the law, and were her intellectual counterparts.
0: And I think they appreciated
1: that in her as well. And if I haven't said it, she was really quite beautiful, which also I think made her a very attractive package. <laughs> mm-hmm. I
0: was wondering if you could speak a bit about her uh, time at the TVA. I mean, what were some of her responsibilities as an attorney, and uh, to and and how did she do in that role as an attorney for the TVA?
1: She was in that role uh, when the agency first started, and it didn't even have its permanent headquarters yet in Knoxville. The the agency just commandeered space in another federal agency in in Washington, and it must have been such an exciting and hectic time. Um, There are reports of hundreds, if not thousands, of people lining up for jobs, that the office was a mess. Um, it's 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 a wonder that Bessie's application didn't get lost. So when she first started in what was called the legal office in Washington, there were just a few people, and they were busy, the lawyers were busy figuring out some of the most fundamental questions of a newly organized federal agency, especially one as unique as the TVA, which operated more like a corporation with three directors than your typical federal agency with an administrator and and a very precise structure. So the early days were somewhat haphazard in terms of her assignments, and she was supervised by a mostly absentee boss, a a very reputable lawyer who spent most of his time in Atlanta. But she convinced and, and proved to everyone how valuable her research and writing skills were from the start. It wasn't until Um, Charges came from the public utility companies that so feared the TVA's competition in pricing over providing, over, uh, providing electricity throughout the Tennessee Valley that litigation was mounted against the TVA. And now we were talking about an agency under fire in addition to just the routine contracts and employee matters and things that Bessie was doing otherwise, to get the new agency up and running. So TVA realized it had to have a new, powerful, seasoned attorney to replace the remote lawyer who had been supervising the, the legal staff. And that's where James Lawrence Fly was brought in. He had been at the in, at the Justice Department handling complex antitrust matters. He was a Harvard Law graduate and as well as an experienced trial attorney. Fortunately, he immediately saw how valuable Bessie was to the team and included her equally with the people he brought in, sort of what became a legal dream team for these constitutional issues that were being mounted against the TVA. And he gave her serious assignments that she fulfilled the files are filled with lengthy memos from from her to him assignments that showed that he was giving her equal work with the other attorneys and she was i could see from both the salaries and the the promotions that he was given that she was pretty much lockstep with the other men and men who exceeded her either had more more experience or were in some very specialized area And she was clearly making more than men with less experience and and who were her junior in other ways. Um, And so Fly really immersed her in what was going to become Supreme Court litigation from the trial upwards. And this proved to be the most wonderful training ground for Bessie for what would later be her career at the Labor Department, seeing what it was like, how a case In a federal agency, starts in the trial level, amassing the facts, creating the witnesses, creating the record that would be essential for the appellate courts. And most importantly, Bessie was able to materially shape the briefs that ended up winning at the Supreme Court and defending the TVA as a New Deal agency for FDR. So this was just prime battleground for Bessie to get her. um, her training in in this new area of, of constitutional litigation and litigation that would go all the way to the Supreme Court. She also got to literally sit in the Supreme Court to hear the arguments in both of those cases and was admitted to the Supreme Court by the Solicitor General Reed in 1935. Interestingly, the court was brand new, When that happened, Uh, the the Supreme Court building that we know today was constructed in 1935 and Bessie was among the the newest of the admittees to the Supreme Court bar when it opened. So those were quite exciting times.
0: So she is involved in uh, these court cases, which are at that time among the very few uh, successful New Deal cases right. before the Supreme Court, and,
1: and this was this was national news. These, the, the, when these cases were being tried, they were the, the details were reported like a sport a sporting event. The motions in the courtroom, how the judge was reacting, two inch banner headlines with rulings in the courts. Um, they competed, the, the case competed with news over the Lindbergh baby. These these issues were so controversial and so important at the time, and Bessie was right in the mix of things.
0: Why does she move from the TVA to uh, the Labor Department, and when does that take place?
1: After the Supreme Court ruled in the TVA's favor in 1938, I think Bessie really had knew that there was little that was going to rival the experience that she had had. She'd been there close to six years and I think was looking for more experience. Um, Aside from these two big cases, her other work involved condemnation cases, which is quite important work, but I think did not portend the same kind of excitement that she had had in these constitutional cases that were going to the Supreme Court, she also faced in those Tennessee and other local, um, in the areas where she was practicing, there was still fierce resistance to women being in a courtroom, and that resistance would come not only from the judges and the lawyers, but even the witnesses and, and basic citizenry. So um, what she found was there was another New Deal program awaiting enforcement, and that was the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, the first time that federal commerce powers were used to prohibit child labor in the federal laws and also to mandate a minimum wage and overtime. And this was quite exciting to Bessie and others uh, from TVA, had found work there, and I think this was an opportunity that, that just beckoned her. Although, again, she had to prove her worth. There's some interesting correspondence about uh, she was negotiating over salary, and the the new counsel for the wage and hour division questioned whether the salary she wanted, which was only a few more hundred dollars than she was getting at TVA, was too much to pay for, quote, a girl. So she ended up taking just a lateral move, same pay as she was getting at TVA, but it opened a a whole new world of of opportunity for her.
0: And she didn't spend all of her time at the Labor Department. She also had an interesting, uh, for lack of a better word, detour after the war involved with the uh, international uh, international, uh, tribunals at Nuremberg.
1: That's right. Um, When she had... um, I guess there's there's a couple things about this Um, when Justice Robert Jackson became very interested in the um, bringing justice to the to the to the accused criminals of of Nazi Germany and he was tapped by Truman just two weeks after FDR died to step down from the, the Supreme Court temporarily and head up the military prosecution in Nuremberg on the international in front of the international military tribunal Bessie had appeared at, and had argued four or five times in front of Jackson before this happened and i know that their paths had crossed also when he was previously solicitor general and in the federal government And I have a feeling that she was particularly enticed by this new opportunity because of of him being at the helm. She wrote to him right after his appointment and asked if she could join his team. He couldn't take her then, he said, because he was under pressure to move quickly, that many of the lawyers that he would be using were either in the military or had been already assigned to him. There doesn't appear to be any prejudice there. He seems to be really quite fond and an and admirer of, of Bessie's abilities. But she did not let this notion go away. When Jackson was in the middle of prosecuting the first big trial of Goering and Hess and the other top-level Nazis before the International Military Tribunal, the U.S. realized that there were hundreds of other second-tier Nazis for whom justice awaited, and the U.S. was trying to figure out the manner in which those those defendants would be tried. Bessie joined up and signed on to for the effort of figuring out how the subsequent proceedings, as they were called, for all of those later trials would occur. So she agreed and volunteered for a six-month tour of duty. She left for Germany in May 1946, arrived there to see The the, the defense case put on, the end of the trial of the Nazis uh, in the International Military Tribunal, and then was asked to draft the rules that would govern the remainder of the trials that instead of an international tribunal would be tried to an American tribunal. And she's credited by the commander of the armed forces for primarily drafting the rules under which some 200 second-tier Nazis were tried. And those trials include the ones that many people are most familiar with, such as in depicted in judgment at nuremberg of the of the judges, but also the trials of the of the doctors and the industrialists and that was quite a formative time for her to do that, but she returned to the labor department when when she was done
0: and uh at the labor department, she soon assumed a uh the leading role in terms of uh, of representing the Labor Department in front of the Supreme Court in those uh, FLSA cases.
1: That's right. And that had started before her time in Nuremberg, which is important because that's why I think she was taken on at Nuremberg as a a lawyer of such stature and treated with that level of of respect and, and responsibility. So by the time she went to Nuremberg, she had already tried five, she had already argued five times at the Supreme Court and had prevailed in four of the cases for which she had argued. And it was because she had proved herself so valuable to each Solicitor General of the United States who ultimately was responsible for arguing those cases that she got those assignments, not just from the first Solicitor General she worked under, which was Charles Fahey, but for some six or seven that succeeded. And she received assignments to argue 24 times at the Supreme Court. She was only one of three women in the 20th century to argue 24 times at the Supreme Court. And she's the only one of those women to have prevailed in such a high percentage, 21 of 24 times. She was the last Labor Department lawyer to receive the distinction of being assigned by a solicitor general to argue at the Supreme Court as well. She retired in 1972, and this distinction of, of arguing at the Supreme Court for the Labor Department ended with her.
0: Wow. So in that respect, she's truly exceptional.
1: Yes, yes. And And I think what's also so fascinating to me after listening to more than half of her arguments on recordings. The first half of them uh, are not recorded. The Supreme Court didn't start recording arguments until 1955. So I can only guess and imagine what she sounded like before then. But from 55 to 1965, which was her last argument, uh, there's at least a dozen or more of the tapes to listen to. And it's interesting, she is no great orator. She does not argue smoothly and with sort of uninterrupted paragraphs. She edits herself as she speaks. She stumbles and starts. But what's so clear and much clearer when you listen to her than when you see the transcript is how conversational she is. She is so completely comfortable in her skin, Standing in the Supreme Court, and mind you, when she argued her first case in 1945, she was only the 25th woman ever, ever to argue there. So that she, she was greeted there with respect. She was so comfortable there that she would engage in conversation with the judges. Her goal was to entice questions. She was always very upset if she didn't get questions, first because she didn't like to hear herself argue or or go on without interruption. But second, it was that she knew she was intriguing them. She knew she had their attention if they were asking her questions. And that was something that she tried to instruct other attorneys about as well. The other way we see that she is so comfortable is she doesn't mind using humor and and uses humor at the Supreme Court, which I don't think many mere mortals would dare do. Um, (laughs) It's not sort of, you know, slapstick humor. It's obviously within context and appropriate, perhaps bordering, uh, you know, uh, something that, that no one with less experience and less respect would try. But you can hear the entire chambers laughing with her um, when when she's playing with the judges. So um, it, it, that's quite extraordinary to hear that someone being so comfortable who is so clearly, unavoidably in the spotlight for better and for worse. She could never avoid being the center of attention as the only woman, in, in usually in the circumstance. But she was also, as I said before, quite attractive. She dressed in well-fitted suits. She showed just the right amount of leg. Her hair, as I said, was always perfectly appointed. And she did catch the attention of the justices in that way as well. Frank, Felix Frankfurter wrote notes to one of his clerks on several occasions noting how Bessie made, quote, deft use of her feminine charms, and in another one, uh, something about how she exploits her female talents. So, um, as I mentioned before, she she was accused of, of playing the woman card, and I think, you know, it was what she had, and it was appropriate.
0: <laughs> and yet, in spite of her uh, success, as an attorney, as a Supreme Court advocate, that didn't translate into opportunities either in teaching or uh, as in, in terms of an appointment as a federal judge. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that.
1: Yeah, isn't that amazing? This business yeah. about teaching law and how women were simply not considered for law professorships was so entrenched that even after... You know, she had made her way into the most elite circles of legal practice at the Supreme Court. The best she could get after years of asking for part-time teaching positions in a number of colleges around the country, law schools around the country, was American University offered her a job teaching part-time, And what they offered her was not constitutional law, wasn't labor law, wasn't procedure, the things she was clearly um, capable of, of teaching with her eyes closed. But they offered her, and she took them up on it, trusts and estates. And what I find so amazing is she took it apparently in good humor or accepted it that it was the only thing they were going to offer, because she wrote to a friend that she was enjoying it because it gave her a chance to learn something new in the law. So that to me was quite remarkable that (laughs) that she took it with with such good grace and she really enjoyed it. So it turned out short-lived because her work just kept increasing and she really could not keep up the additional outside work which in part was spurred by a desire for additional income. So, um the, the labor department did end up you know she she was always entitled to merit increases and there were bonuses available that she, because she won awards for her outstanding achievements. And then on the judicial front, it was during a sabbatical that she had earned it was a career service award, the highest award the Labor Department gave. Bessie earned in, received in 1961, and she took a year, uh, part of the time she studied labor management relations at Harvard, and the second half of the year she spent traveling European countries to really immerse herself in labor management issues. But she also exposed herself to a a number of issues in um, equal pay for women, which was was interesting. So while she's away, she learns that her dear friend, Oscar Davis, from the Solicitor General's Office, has received an appointment to the Court of Claims, which is the court that hears, for the most part, cases involving the federal government. And Bessie writes to her new lover, Um, back in Washington, a gentleman who was general counsel to the Interstate Commerce Commission, that she was intrigued by this notion and that she was going to write to Hale Boggs, the, uh, uh, the, the Louisiana congressman who became quite powerful in Congress, of her interest and someone she knew well enough that she could write to. So thus began somewhere in 1962 her pursuit of a federal judgeship. And it really started uh, seriously not until after Kennedy's death and uh, President Kennedy's assassination and um, Johnson taking office. So it was really under LBJ that that her quest for the judgeship was, was most serious. And despite the fact that she had glowing recommendations from William O. Douglas and from the Secretary of Labor and from a number of other people, including Hale Boggs, the the Treasury Secretary, Henry Fowler, um, who was one of Bessie's Yale classmates, and a number of other important people, she just and, didn't and, get much traction she was and this is in spite of had, the fact
0: that Lyndon Johnson, sorry and that's in spite of the fact that Lyndon Johnson as you quote in 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 his correspondence he's looking for oh, a yes. woman to point <laughs> to the bench
1: <laughs> that's right it was during the time when when Johnson had pledged very publicly to put 50 women in the highest posts in government so he did consider Bessie there is a wonderful tape recording thanks to the the presidential recordings of Johnson asking on one occasion about that Jewish woman at the Labor Department, <laughs> and asking immediately Willard Words to get her the file, get him the file and a photograph on Bessie, um, asking you know how old is she and other uh, other information. So it really there there are three things that happen. One is her quote illicit love affair with James Lawrence Fly in the TVA had been dutifully recorded in her FBI file when, for, when she first was accused of disloyalty, charges that were all too common um, in, in our federal government in the, in the 40s and the 50s. Um, and so every time another question came up about Bessie's loyalty, so did the, the, the writings about her illicit love affair with James Lawrence Fly. And so whether or not that was the straw that broke the camel's back for Bessie not getting the judgeship. I can't be quite sure, but it's clear that that information was delivered to the White House when it requested a name check, you know, when it requested a name check for the judicial considerations. But she had other things going against her. One was a male White House staffer who was obviously not used to Bessie's fashion-forward appearance, and she was from everyone else's characterizations, quite stylish. Um, But he noted in his notes of their interview that she was, quote, flamboyant, which which is hard to characterize as anything but a negative for a person wanting to become a federal judge. And the second thing, somewhat later, and probably what closed the file against Bessie, was when it was written that her age, parentheses 58, end parentheses would tend to preclude her from consideration so there were seven judicial vacancies for the two courts she most wanted the Circuit Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia where um, there there were no women on that there were no appellate federal appellate judges in the country at the time or on the Court of Claims and no woman had held that post either so there were 7 judicial vacancies that Bessie was passed over for for those positions. They were all filled by men, 5 of whom were older than Bessie. So that was that was sort of the the you know the the, the and she was very disappointed about that. She was very disappointed about not getting the judgeship. You
0: you mentioned uh at that by that point in her uh, time at the Labor Department, she was becoming increasingly involved in uh, equal pay equal opportunity cases and it seems as though she develops a greater interest in them than she had earlier in her career and I was wondering if maybe that was a reflection of this personal experience both the uh the 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 limitations in terms of uh, teaching opportunities and of all the frustration she's getting with uh, getting a, a judicial appointment did did that by any chance possibly shape her views in that respect or shape her uh or or change her perspective on some things?
1: Sort of. The chronology is a little more complicated. And, And clearly, Bessie's life experience as a woman factors heavily. But it was in 1963, what was more surprising than Congress passing President Kennedy's bill, the Equal Pay Act, more surprising than that it passed it all, is that it was put in the Fair Labor Standards Act. So in 1963, Bessie, as associate solicitor of labor, was essentially in charge of all of the department's Fair Labor Standards Act litigation and appeals. When the Equal Pay Act landed on her desk as well, it was hers regardless. But it's clear that she had never really, in a professional way, extended herself on, on matters that were specific to women the Fair Labor Standards Act was you know equal opportunity in the sense it was minimum wage for both men and women although there were so many exemptions in the types of jobs that women might have it was there there's there's some issue there but but for the most part her cases were workers men men and women whoever held the jobs so the Equal Pay Act really gave Bessie a reason to learn firsthand about the economic discrimination that women had been facing. And she even says in a a later year when someone asked her whether she was a feminist, she says, no, I've never been one, but I'm becoming one. And (laughs) what strikes me is she, of course, had always been one. You know, for a woman who simply wanted to be treated equally and expected that all women should be treated that way, she was the dictionary definition of a feminist. But the word was so charged at the time that even she, this meticulous wordsmith, couldn't apply it to herself. But she talked about that once she saw the facts of the cases, how women were simply paid less money than men for doing the same job, she really, it took root. So the, the judgeship hardships were happening contemporaneously with her time with the Equal Pay Act, so maybe you know both were eye opening and she clearly was aware of the fact of the the dearth of federal women as federal judges, so equal opportunity was something she was pursuing professionally and personally. Um, the other thing is but the first time. Since her time with Doris Stevens, way back three decades earlier, that she really ever wrote anything about equal pay and women's equal opportunity was when she was on that sabbatical, and she actually did a, a short survey of countries that were pursuing equal pay as a principle, and that was the first time I saw her expressly writing and being concerned about issues she had set aside 3 decades earlier. So that that was really wonderful that the seeds that maybe were really deeply planted back with Dora Stevens <laughs> in 1933 were finally blossoming when the equal pay act landed on Bessie's desk. But she took it on with a vengeance. And one of the things she did in her role as the top law enforcer of the Equal Pay Act that I didn't see her do with the Fair Labor Standards Act before that was she became a spokesperson. She accepted invitations that came quite often to speak at very large associations of lawyers and corporate counsel who wanted to hear about this thing called the Equal Pay Act. And then the year after it, Title VII's prohibitions against sex discrimination in the Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty four. And they couldn't they couldn't ignore her. They were looking and hearing someone who had for years been winning cases under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And now she was telling them that the Labor Department was taking very seriously its obligations to give women the, the, the wages they were entitled to. So she was even invited to speak at one conference in California where the organizer said, we want you to come and put the fear of God in our attendees. <laughs> so she she really seemed to thrive in a way in this opportunity in a new role that she either didn't seek out or it just it hadn't really presented itself before the Equal Pay Act. And she seemed to be quite good at it, earning herself, in one reporter's words, the title of the nation's uh, top uh, top fighter for equal pay for women. That was in 1968.
0: It's fascinating that she, that she comes across this issue relatively late in her career. She becomes such a champion, and then she retires.
1: <laughs> That's right. Although, there really is sort of the, the you know, in the movie version, which, which, you know, I can only dream about the, pin- <laughs> <laughs> the the pinnacle of her career is an equal pay act case that was denied review by the Supreme Court. It was a victory for Bessie that they didn't take it. But it's interesting that of her twenty-four arguments at the Supreme Court, the case that really seemed to have made the most difference to law today, I didn't need to review or didn't take, and that was Schultz v. Wheaton Glass. This was the first Equal Pay Act case to be heard by an appellate court. It was the the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, the, the court right below the Supreme Court. But it was the first Equal Pay Act case in the country to be heard by an appellate court. And Bessie succeeded in convincing the Third Circuit to overturn a very detailed, Trial court's opinion that was informed by not one, but two judicial visits to the plant when any visit by a judge during a trial to a site is extraordinarily rare. And people feared the case was reversal proof because it was so laden with all of these factual recitations. And, tra- and appellate courts are loath to upset. Issues of credibility and fact that the trial judge uh, sets forth in a ruling. But the the heart of the case was this was a a glass bottle manufacturing plant quite well known in, in Millville, New Jersey. And ironically, one of the customers of the plant was the Avon Company, which of course specializes in women's cosmetics. So the company had two types of selector packers, the people who would stand on the assembly line and inspect the bottles as they came out of the cooling device and pack them into cartons. And there were male selector packers and there were female selector packers by those names. And the male selector packers, all of them, got 10% more money than the female selector packers because it was stated that the men um, um, uh, demonstrated greater flexibility to perform additional duties, duties which they were only called upon to perform a small percentage of the time. But as I said, the trial court agreed with the plant and upheld the 10% wage differential and found no violation of the Equal Pay Act. So when Bessie got the... Third Circuit to overturn the judge's ruling, it was because the Third Circuit set forth a precedent that was, and a principle that is still binding and important today that jobs need only be substantially equal and not identical to merit equal pay under the Act. And that's the ruling that she left behind. The other thing she did in, by the time she was ready to retire in 1972, she had also argued the first and won the first appeals under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. Also somewhat ironic given the treatment she had received in her, in her judicial quest. But the, but the the thing that really did it for Bessie was she saw the end of the New Deal. She had lived with the New Deal. She had seen President Kennedy and all of the things that he brought. She was part of the great society that President Johnson brought about in terms of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And Nixon's second term, I think, was just more than she could bear. (laughs) And in correspondence with Bob Janine, her paramour in those later years, it, it was they both just had a sense of how dismal Washington felt. And the other thing was that although Bessie would be the first to say that her age was completely irrelevant under any legal standard, simply her longevity was making her be. Oh, she she had been in federal government more years then the last few solicitors she worked for had been alive. So she was now working for labor solicitors who were in their 30s, and that's the number of years she'd been in federal government. And and they were becoming increasingly more conservative by her standards. And I think it was harder for her to maintain the level of independence and um, delegation of authority that she had enjoyed for so long. So with that, she had, I guess, amassed enough of a nest egg to retire, and she did that in January 1972, literally days after the final ruling was entered in the Wheaton Glass case, the Equal Pay Act case. And within the same month as another successful ruling under her last argument in an Age Discrimination in Employment Act case. So she went out with a bang.
0: Wow. Um, Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, uh, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. And this is definitely another uh, Bessie Margolin-inspired product. project I'm writing a history of the Jewish orphanage of New Orleans I was so infatuated with the history of this institution that produced Bessie and her siblings as and to which I'm very grateful for what it did for me but there were 1700 children who lived in the orphanage from the time it opened in 1856 until its doors closed in 1946 and it's been said without real documentation that, for the most part, they were all overachievers, like Bessie. And for the most part, what I'm finding is that seems to be true. But I think there's great stories to be tell, told in these people, and I'm looking to do this in the form of a collective biography. So um, I have a, a number of research projects about the children in the home going on, studying their demographics, but right now I'm interviewing people, um, a lot of centenarians, either who are alumni of the home or who are descendants of alumni in the home. And it's been just a joyous experience. So.
0: Well, it sounds like it. I, I look forward to uh, reading the book when it comes out.
1: <laughs> Me too. <laughs>
0: Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I uh, really enjoyed uh, speaking with you about uh, Bessie Margolin and her remarkable life. And uh, good luck with uh, your future endeavors.
1: Thanks so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure.